Who's your commanding officer? He got decapitated by an 88 about six weeks ago. But I mean, don't say you're sorry. He's been trying to get us killed. Ever since we landed at Omaha Beach, it's terrible. I, he hasn't reported him dead yet. You see, I've been collecting his whiskey. If I hear any more threats against Captain Maitland's life, if I hear any more wild talk about going down to headquarters and killing the general or raping the nurses at the field hospital, I'm going to strangle a guy with my bare hands. You understand that? It's going to take a little time to get organized, but I want that farmhouse to look like a nightclub. Little Joe, I want you to set up a bar. We ain't got no booze. We ain't got no booze. Well, we're going to get some booze. We see our role as essentially defensive in nature. While our armies are advancing so fast and everyone's knocking themselves out to be heroes, we are holding ourselves in reserve. Hello? In case the... Hello. So the scene that you just heard was from the great movie Kelly's Heroes with Clint Eastwood and Donald Sutherland. Which I just saw for the first time this weekend. And how would you describe that movie? Um, well, um, it was definitely, it had a, a, a pretty, a neat quality to it because it's kind, it had, obviously it borders on comedy. Should I have given you like, how would you describe that movie in a sentence? No, because why would I, okay, just one sentence? Yeah, well, it just sounded like you were setting yourself up there for a whole podcast on Kelly's Heroes. No, no, I was just going to say that I really, I liked the the tone of the movie because it's always kind of, it's a little absurd. Yeah, it's funny. And it's funny. funny. Yeah. And it's like if Ocean's Eleven met a World War II movie. Yeah, but it's not laugh out loud funny. At least it wasn't for me. It, it, you laughed out loud? I was sitting right parts, next to you. We both parts. laughed out loud. I laughed out loud anytime uh, Donald Sutherland came on. <laughs> yeah, that dude stole the show. He absolutely stole the show. But that was I. That was one of my favorite movies growing up. My dad had us watch it all the time, and the main focus of the movie was the one tagline he had, which was "Cut it out with the negative waves, baby." Yeah. One thing I noticed this time watching though is how he says that the the hustler guy's name crap game. Crap game. He says instead of just saying crap game, he says it crap game. Yeah. It's pretty funny. Yeah, he he was great in that. Okay. So on from fictional World War Two to some real World War Two. Oh wait, that was fiction. Oh, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Well, I was. It was funny. I was describing it to the the guys in the work today. And uh, he was like, well, I mean, was it based on a true story? And I was like, I, I hope not. But also, I kind of... Well, you know what made me think of Merrill's Marauders? I, I don't think that that's what they were, but we were talking about that. That might be our next topic. But we were talking about that. It made me think of that. I, I doubt it's based on that, but maybe there's elements of it that was that were based on... I don't. From what the brief description you gave me of Merrill's Marauders, it doesn't... I hope... No, I'm sure it doesn't, but it just made me think of that. I don't know why. And so our topic today is the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. Uh, They were the all-Japanese-American combat team that was recruited by President Roosevelt after he had signed them off to the internment camps and labeled them as, what was the... 
citation that like, he made all Japanese Americans. Like class 4C, C, yeah, 4C. 4C enemy aliens. Yeah, 4C enemy aliens. Uh, so I just, I'll start off with this. The 442nd Regimental Combat Team is the most decorated unit for its size and length of service in the history of American warfare. The 4,000 men who initially came in April 1943 had to be replaced nearly two and a half times. In total, about 14,000 men served. The unit was awarded eight presidential unit citations, five earned in one month. 21 of its members were awarded medals of honor, and members of the 442nd received 18,143 awards in less than two years. So, I don't know if you're going to get at math, but that's more awards than there are men. So that means a lot of these oh, guys wow. were awarded awarded awards multiple, multiple times. Multiple yeah. times. That's and we talked about this wild. yesterday when we were going over the stuff, but um, out of those Medal of Honor winners, the 21, there was only, a, there was only one who was awarded the Medal of Honor after World War II, within mm-hmm. four to five years, and the rest were throughout the years as the, they were reviewed and different presidents have gone through it. There was a bunch in the 90s under Clinton, and then there was some more during uh, Obama. And I'm sure there were other presidents, too. Those were just the two that were covered uh, when I was looking through the research. Did you happen to find how many of them are still alive at this point? I did not. Be interesting to know, huh? I don't think there's that many, though, because yeah. when I was looking at that Medal of Honor winner yesterday, there's only three Medal of Honor winners from World War II still alive. Oh, wow. So if those other two are Japanese-Americans, which is pretty low chance, mm-hmm. you know. But, yeah, I don't I don't think there's the many World War II vets left. That's worth a Google, though. Yeah, I tried. I think I tried at some point. Maybe I didn't. You know what's funny is the, the some of the notes I got from the last show was not to open with stuff you don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> I told him I like to sound like an everyman. Yeah, well, I, I mean, it's nice of you to share, like, the notes with me. Well, you didn't ask, so. You didn't share anything. I shared one. What was the one I shared with you? Uh, it was, like, a thumbs up. No, that your name from last episode sounded like a stripper. Yeah. So what's your name this episode? Margaret Thatcher. Who sounds like a prime minister of England. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. So you, you went from... Being a stripper to the prime minister. Stiletto to flats. Yeah. I think that's that's pretty American dream as far as I'm concerned. Well, the American dream is being John Wayne Jr., baby, and that's me. <laughs> but moving on. Uh, this topic is huge, and there's no way we're going to be able to cover all of it um, in an hour. We're going to cover as much as we possibly can. Hey, are you recording on that other device? Oh, I didn't know I was supposed to. Oh. Anyway, hopefully this one sticks. But uh, we're going to do the best as possible to cover the 442nd from you know how they were created with uh, Roosevelt's bans on their service to them being used as anti-propaganda against the Japanese to their merging with the 100th and their times in Italy, and we're going to go all the way up to their rescuing of the Lost Battalion, which is one of their more infamous missions, uh, where they really displayed a large measure of heroism. Uh, But there's just too much to cover in one episode. 
So this will be kind of a benchmark episode. I'm sure we'll come back to it and talk about individuals that were in the 442nd or events that surrounded the 442nds, and this will be something people can look back on as a broad stroke of the unit's history. But to start it off, we should probably talk about uh, the internment camps. Yeah, so Roosevelt issues Executive Order 9066, and that order is both... So all Japanese American, all Amer- well, America, they were American citizens, but if they were of Japanese descent, and any, I guess, what would be if there were any legal residents living that were from Japanese resent- descent, but were not citizens. Um, so it's it's mostly just in California, right? Yeah, because there was a big distinction. Um, so Pearl Harbor happens. And the Japanese bombed the U.S., and that was the first time since the War of 1812 that we had had war on our shores, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Maybe parts of the Mexican-American War, but serious war had not happened. A serious invasion attempt hadn't been happened since the 1812. And um, the funny thing is Hawaii is such a hodgepodge and a true American melting uh, bowl of different cultures a lot of them being of Japanese descent, I guess it was just more absurd for them to throw those Japanese Americans into internment camps. So whenever the order was placed, the Japanese, uh, or not the Japanese, the American general who was in charge of Hawaii at the time said that it would cripple the um, industrial zones too much and it would hurt the economy too much. I think that was just his way of saying we're not going to do it because when you look at um, the facts that we study later, when he calls up volunteers, the majority of volunteers came from Hawaii. I think Hawaiians had a strong sense of patriotism, and I think the Japanese Americans in Hawaii really hated the Japanese more than anybody because it's it's like if you had a big brother come and beat up you and your new friend. You're not going to just be like, oh... obviously I'm siding with my big brother, you'll probably get a little mad, right? Yeah. Because you don't understand why all of a sudden he came over there. And uh, anyway, so... So that was was in Hawaii, right? And then it happened throughout the West Coast, though, right? Yeah, so unfortunately in California, it wasn't... um, They were much more of a minority, so it was easier just to snag up all the Japanese because they didn't really have... um, they didn't really have a lot of people speaking up for them like they did in Hawaii. And so they grabbed, do you have the number and of the people that they grabbed? That the amount of people Japan they grabbed in Radio Tokyo. Um, and Radio no, Tokyo not the total number. was one of their propaganda devices, and they started putting out transmissions it was a lot. saying that America that was much. racist so they because they were imprisoning all of their um, citizens of Asian descent. And they were playing that all over Indochina, in the Philippines, so places where America was trying to get a foothold and trying to convince the native populations to fight with them. Uh, and so it did not make us look very good. In response to that, and after they kind of realized that maybe they went over the top with imprisoning all Japanese Americans thinking that they were spies, uh, Roosevelt at that point allowed for a battalion to be formed of just Japanese Americans. Yeah, so real quick... Um 
it says here that the first oh uh, between 1942 and 45 a total of 10 camps were opened which held approximately 120,000 Japanese Americans um, for varying periods of time so yeah pretty large pretty large number yeah, and we can do a whole episode on just that. And I've read books uh, about people who were in those camps, and I've seen a lot of stuff about it. But I don't want to focus on that or put a lot of time into it because I, I think what these guys did, the men of the 442nd, was so awesome. They really deserve uh, the majority of the talk. Yeah. I think it's worth noting, though, just how much, because you mentioned, you know, it, it sort of it took a little while for Roosevelt to approve from what I remember, the 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 forming of the 442nd, so there was a lot of back and forth and obviously a lot of discussion of people who thought that it was not a good idea. And, and so it's just interesting. I think I, I want to read something that Roosevelt had, um, his statement, but I don't have it in front of me, so keep going. Fine. Yeah, and honestly, I... I don't know. Everything's so political around these guys. I, I'm i sure Roosevelt says something to the effect of all people that are citizens of America, blah, 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 nothing to do with race, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But it yeah. goes against everything that he did before it. So I think it was just a political move. Right. No, I'm not. Yeah. yeah I mean, but it, it's just interesting to note um, that it, it sort of took all this discussion. They finally... They, f- they finally discovered their constitution and all of it. Yeah. Right. Anyway, so he allows them to form this unit. And uh, as I said, they become one of the most decorated units or the most decorated unit in history. But to talk about just kind of their formation. So when they originally called them up, um, they actually already had the 100th Battalion, which was the Hawaiians. And so, like we said, the Hawaiians actually didn't intern their Japanese, and they already had a bunch of Japanese-Americans in National Guard units. And so they took all those and put them into one, and it, had a, it wasn't just Japanese-Americans. It was also different mixtures of uh, Asian-Americans. And they were the 100th Battalion, or the one Puka Puka. And a funny thing about that is when uh, members of the 442nd, who were all pretty much Japanese-Americans from the mainland, uh, ended up meshing with the 100th. They complained because the the guys in the 100th apparently spoke a lot of pigdin, which, uh, if you don't know what a pigdin is, it's a language that develops out of trade between two cultures. And so since Hawaii has been a major trading hub, uh, they have obviously had a pigdin for a long time between all the different nations that trade there. And I thought that was just amusing because you don't really hear about those languages anymore. Um, so a note on languages, since you brought it up, um, I read something that the Japanese word for four, I think pronounced she, I'm not sure, uh, is pronounced in the same way as as death. And so a lot of the Japanese thought the 442nd was a, a bad omen. Uh, I just thought that was interesting. I didn't see that. Well, they proved it wrong. Yeah. Uh and another note about the 100th, so the 100th went into action before the 442nd, and they were actually known as the Purple Heart Brigade because they received so many Purple Hearts in uh, the action at Monte Cassino in uh, Italy. 
And the movie, you remember that movie we watched? I do. So if you want to watch a great movie that explains a lot of this, you can find it for free on YouTube, and it's a restored 1951 military-produced film, <laughs> which is just hilarious to me, and it's entitled Go for Broke! Yeah. Exclamation point, which is the 442nd Regimental uh, motto. And it's actually pretty funny. It was, yeah. It was, we sort of... Um, pressed play kind of as a well let's see what happens and we did we ended up watching the whole thing it was pretty entertaining and had some funny moments yeah it's it's good and and a lot of it's just kind of funny because you're seeing a film produced by people in the 1950s so if you find amusement and stuff like that it's it's good i i got a good laugh my favorite part was the guy that tries to keep the pig yeah (laughs) my favorite part was when i figured it out that Movies have the uh, Ninja Turtle set up. Oh, the archetype. Yeah, we've they had uh, four Japanese American soldiers, and they fit the the Ninja Turtles. They had a Donnie and a Leo and a Rude Raff. Anyway, Leonardo. So the hundredth already goes and gets action, and then uh, uh, so in March nineteen forty-two, they're finally formed up in. Uh, Mississippi. They do their main training. The 100th gets folded into them. Uh, and then they start moving back towards Italy where they fall under the 3rd Army. Which I thought was another interesting note because the 3rd Army was Patton's army. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember them being mentioned at all in Patton's movie. No, you're right. I don't remember either. I so, don't think there was. I, I'm curious about that if they remade it. Or if if we read anything about Patton, we would find him commenting on that. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I read something. Well, are you in the, are we in Monte Cassino yet? Did you just pass? No, not yet. Okay. Oh, we already passed it. Yeah. I I wasn't getting into it, though. Oh, okay. Monte Cassino Um, with the 100th. No, I just thought it was interesting because I read about uh, one of the guys that was captured by the Germans, and they 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 kind of took a look at him, and they were like, Whoa, you know, because you know what, they weren't sent to the Pacific Theater for the reason that they would be maybe confused with the enemy, um, and so this particular guy who got caught as a POW, they the Germans kept asking him, "Why are you fighting for America? Why are you fighting for America?" <laughs> and he just he said he got so tired of trying to tell him, "I'm an American." So they have that funny line in that movie Go for Broke we were just talking about where the American lieutenant or not the American, the white lieutenant and the three Japanese soldiers overrun a machine gun position and take prisoners. Oh, yeah. And then the German looks at the the Japanese American Mm. and says, what's going on here? Yeah. The lieutenant answers, oh, haven't you heard the Japanese surrendered and they're fighting for us now? That's true. That was a good bit. I'm sure they made that joke quite a few amount of times. They had to have. Anyway, all right, before we keep going further, actually, I had this highlighted and wanted to bring it up. There was uh, talking about just the, you know, the debate with bringing on Japanese Americans. They had to answer a questionnaire that basically tested their Ooh. loyalty, and that was actually kind of a big deal because two of the questions were, "Are you willing to serve in the armed forces of the United States on combat duty wherever ordered, and will you swear unqualified allegiance to the United States of America and faithfully defend the United States from any or all attack by foreign or domestic forces 
and forswear any form of allegiance or obedience to the Japanese emperor or any foreign government power organization. Yeah, that was a lot. But I bring that up to say that uh, a quarter of the Nisei males, and Nisei is what they use for Japanese-American second-generation males, Mm -hmm. Uh, but a quarter answered no out of protest to both of those questions. Hmm. And there was actually a, a book written on the subject by one of the guys who said no and was imprisoned for it called the No-No Boys because they would answer no and no to those. So when we talk about these were guys who were conflicted emotionally, I mean, they just saw their parents who had become citizens and themselves who were born here get all their property taken away, all their families thrown into a camp, and then they're being asked once again, hey, are you, you know, are you loyal? It's, it's like a spit in the face. Mm-hmm. And 75% of them just bit on their tongues and said, yes, and I'm going to prove it to you. So I thought that was pretty cool. And it sucks for those 25%. I can understand why they would say no. Yeah. Uh, huh. I, I wouldn't have said no, but I can understand for sure why they did after experiencing that. <clears throat> but to go over some numbers... So whenever he asked for volunteers, and by he, I mean FDR, they called for 1,500 volunteers from Hawaii and 3,000 from the mainland. 10,000 men from Hawaii volunteered. Yeah. Um, and the mainland was a lot less. So they ended up swapping the numbers, and it was 2,900 came from Hawaii and 1,500 came from the mainland on the original forming of the 442nd. So I thought that was interesting as well, just to talk once again about how Hawaii was probably a lot more pro-America. Yeah, those are pretty crazy numbers to think that 10,000 kind of showed up. Yeah. So uh, the 100th departed early, like we talked about, because they had been formed early. They went through Anzio and Monte Cassino, and that's where they earned the nickname Purple Heart Battalion. Uh, And then the newly formed unit went into battle together. So that was when the 442nd was trained up and went over to Italy, met up with the 100th, and they became one battalion again. And they went to battle at the village of Belvedere in Severto, Tuscany, on 26th of June, 1944. Um, And even though those units started melding, the 100th still kept their own identity And they bring up the fact that the 100th had their own citations separate from the 442nd, even when they were in action together, which I thought was interesting. Um, So there's a bunch of stories here about their fighting through Italy. But basically, they they fight their way all the way up through Italy and cross a few rivers, go through a few towns. The fighting's pretty heavy. Um, They constantly prove themselves of valor. And uh, one story I thought was interesting was when they talked about how during one of their heaviest encounters, um, they reach this hill and it's covered by a couple of German machine gun mm-hmm. squads and they have artillery coming down. And one of the officers told the lieutenant, who is Japanese American, hey, you need to charge straight up that hill. And he refused mm-hmm. the order and he refused it and refused it and refused it. And he said, you need to let me do this my own way. And then he, they outflanked uh, the Germans, and they ended up taking the position with less losses. Nice. He was a uh, threatened court-martial at the time. Later, he was elevated to a Medal of Honor for his actions because he was you know, that smart. But So even after they had gone into Italy, um, there were still some officers who were in charge of them who were white Americans that were giving them shit for being Japanese. doubting, yeah. 
Yeah, and some of that's probably just being a bad officer. I mean, I'm sure there was a lot of bad officers that told uh, regular white dudes in the Army stupid stuff G- as well. Gave them, yeah, yeah, bad orders. Yeah, but that was an interesting story from that campaign. Do you have, what else do you have on um, Italy? No, on Monte Cassino and, it, yeah, Italy, I don't have anything else, really. But it's good stuff. Um, I... I wonder how many half Japanese, half Italian babies came out from that war. I'm sure. I'm sure there was a couple. A couple. You think there were a couple? A couple. I think there were more than no, a couple. I, yeah, I think no. there should be a documentary made just on those kids. Can you imagine just growing up and yeah, like, hey, why is everyone looking at me funny? That's true. Yeah. I mean, that <laughs> had to be pretty unique to be a half Asian bastard child of war. Oh yeah, and I'm Italy. sure I'm sure it happened a lot. Yeah, not to take away from the honor of the 442nd dudes, but I mean, if I was in Italy during World War II, I probably would have tried my hardest to make a bastard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you would have. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so moving on from Italy, they make their way. They reached the Arno River, and there, in the 25th of July, that ended the Rome Arno campaign. They suffered casualties of 1,272 men. So casualties, uh, for listeners who don't know, doesn't mean that you're a dead soldier. It just means that something happened to you. So it could be an injury or it could be missing. So breaking down that 1,272 men, it was 17 were missing, 44 were non-combat injuries, 972 wounded, and 239 were killed. And that was after traveling only a distance of 40 miles. So they rested, yeah, it's pretty nuts, right? Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, that was village fighting, which would be tough. Yeah. Because even when you get in a town, once you take it, then it's door-to-door stuff, and then you get put in a position where you haven't fully gotten security of the town, so it's real easy to strike you uh, from counterattacks. So they rested from 25th of July to 15th August. And then they started patrolling the Arno, and they crossed it on 31st of August, and everything was relatively uneventful at that point. Uh, so they had basically, you know, helped the push up Italy. Italy was kind of not becoming the focus at that time, and everything was shifting to D-Day. So we had covered our flank there, and now they were, uh, parts of them were starting to get picked up and brought over to England to help with that part of the invasion. So the only part of the 442nd that participated in D-Day was actually the anti-tank company, which was interesting because when reading about them, uh, they were a part of the 1st Airborne Task Force, and they got put in the gliders that were flown across the channel and flown into uh, Germany. Yeah, and those were the ones that, I mean, if they even just, Mildly, mildly didn't land right. They were completely they blow up. They landed very right? wrong. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's y- scary. Yeah. If you don't know what we're talking about when we mention gliders, it would be good for you to um, probably Google an image of them. But it's basically uh, with the airborne soldiers that were being dropped, they would tow across these. I guess they're still technically planes. They just don't have engines. Mm. But it's like if you saw a Cessna without an engine. 
And inside of that Cessna, they had uh, sometimes it would be a Jeep, sometimes it would be a piece of heavy equipment, a squad of men, um, a general who didn't want to jump, whatever it was. But they were towing across just as many men and just as much equipment as they were, you know, parachuting in. So if you can imagine, that was how many gliders they had. And we saw it in the museum and we read about it, but it was it was pretty rough on those guys. Yeah, I mean, and they weren't, I mean, fr- from what I remember, they weren't, they weren't that easy to control, right? Because they were... Well, it was like an experiment in theory. Yeah. Yeah, like I'm sure they did a few of them, but doing it in that large of a mass. And then, you know, they had that one story about the, the glider pilot who, at the last minute, they decided to put extra equipment on. Oh, right. And he wasn't aware of it, and he was the uh, only survivor out of his whole mm. crew. And they have a part in oh, uh, yeah, that's rough. Saving Private Ryan about it, too, actually. I think they were referring to that one story with that guy. Hmm. But, yeah, it was it was pretty rough. They suffered a lot of losses. So their anti-tank company was awarded for the work they did in that uh, glider action. And at that point, um, once they've done D-Day, the 442nd lands in Marseille, 30th of September. So that's uh, a month and it's almost two months after D-Day, right? Mm. 6th of June? Yeah. To that time. So we've obviously, they've already gone through the hedges, and they're starting to push the Germans out of France. But the 442nd uh, begins to help with that push. And it was funny, I was listening to one of the dudes from the 442nd talk about um, how they rode in the rail cars. And because originally, in order to get transported to the front of the lines, they just jumped in rail cars. Mm. And they said they got so tired of going four miles up and two miles back and four miles up and two miles back that they got out and they got in the trucks and then walked pretty much the rest (laughs) of the way. Um, So at this point, a couple of things happen. They go through two uh, bigger points of action. They hit Bruyères and Bifontaine, which are both uh, places in France. Uh, Bruyères... I thought this was interesting. The 442nd ended up capturing 134 Wormach members, which included Poles, Yugoslavs, Somalis, East Indians, and they were of the regiment Free Indian. Hmm. Yeah. Did you even know Indians fought for the Third Reich or were allowed to fight for the Third Reich? No, I can't. No. Yeah. We're going to have to do a piece on that because that was fascinating to me. Yeah. Um, so that was from Bruyere's and then in Bifontaine, uh, the interesting thing I saw there was the hundredth actually got themselves encircled. So as the line was pushing forward, the hundredth battalion, which was the Hawaiian dudes, mm-hmm. uh, ended up just a little bit forward from everyone else. And they were in a town, which was Bifontaine and they got encircled for a whole day by the Germans and no one really knew about it, but they just fought tooth and nail until the line caught up to them. Uh, and they, yeah, they got some casualties from that one. And um, there were definitely a lot of medals given out. But moving on. So after that tough action, they were supposed to be going to get some rest off the lines. Um, and that didn't last too long because after about two days, the Lost Battalion incident happened, which was two miles east of Bifontaine. 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 Uh, 
Which if you want to speak to that, because you had an interesting note about just the general who was in charge of, of all that that made that happen. Yeah, well, from what I read, um, so initially there was a little bit of confusion and his name was General Dahlquist. And he, uh, from what I understand, was a little controversial or at least his style or the way that he always told um, guys to move forward and move forward, he would put a lot of pressure and so a lot of his decisions were kind of questioned by other officers. And so it's there was a, some misunderstanding that got the battalion lost in the first place. That was kind of on his <coughs> shoulders. And, um, and so then when he issued the order for the Japanese Americans to go, um, there, was, there was other regiments around that were kind of hesitant to even listen to the orders because they kind of knew that this guy was kind of volatile and they I guess they'd lost confidence in the guy already he was kind of um, controversial in that way and so in any case the order was a little controversial to say the least Um, and that came out was that the movie we saw or the documentary because we were, watched I mean, that they were documentary, all based around right? It. Yeah, the the, and, the movie we saw, the Go for Broke movie, lightly covered it. They didn't really make it. I mean, that was like a feel good movie, so they didn't yeah. show you just how shitty that. So situation it was that was. documentary we yeah, saw. Yeah, the documentary, which was so the documentary, um, which if you go on YouTube and you search four forty second Japanese American, it's the first one that pops up, and it's produced by a Japanese. Uh, I guess a TV program. They didn't really say, and it was in Japanese, so didn't do my research on that one. <laughs> but it looks like uh, mm-hmm. it looks like if a news program from the U.S. had headlines in Japanese, that's what their little watermark is on the upper left of the video. But they produced their own documentary on the Japanese American in America during World War II, which was hilarious to me. I guess I, I mean. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how their TV works over there. I guess that's entertaining. I don't. That just seems bizarre because mm-hmm. are really cool because they lost and they were still able to do that. Yeah, they. I yeah, I don't know. You know. Anyway, um, it'd be like if Germans came over and you know what I mean. Like it yeah. just is kind of weird. But the documentary had a bunch of good stuff. Um, and they really focused on that one particular segment of the 442nd's history, which was the Lost Battalion part. So if you are interested, there's, there is an abundance of material on YouTube for you to find that covers this topic. Yeah, and it would be interesting to know more about General Dahlquist, because obviously I never, I didn't look deeply into him, but it just seemed that, um, you know, maybe he was he was a little quick to order order them to to advance 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 so um but any anyways in the documentary they represented too and how um he was telling what was the name of their of the their leader or their commander i can't remember it the lieutenant colonel yes yeah i don't have it in front of me either but um Anyway, the lieutenant colonel, basically General Dahlquist, 
let, let me some let me drop some background before we get to that though. So 275 men uh, of uh, a Texas infantry guard, um, which it consisted of men from companies Alpha, Bravo, and Charlie, and a platoon from Company Delta, were cut off two kilometers behind enemy lines, um, and they were noted as the Lost Battalion. And General Dahlquist ordered the 442nd to go in to rescue them. And to get an idea for how shitty of a rescue this was, so the mm-hmm. terrain, and you can hear, um, you know, the surviving members who talked about this in their older days. When you hear them talk about that terrain and you see the terrain, it's it's pretty baffling. Because they basically walked into a valley, which is the worst place to be in a fight, while the enemy had control of all the surrounding high terrain. And if you think it is, of it as though it was a horseshoe, so you have three hills, and the Germans have all three, you know, rises of those hills and from the uh western one they're constantly reinforcing their position and able to do counterattacks. and then the northern and eastern one have heavy machine gun teams and also they're calling down artillery and mm. you talk about it you see it in uh, band of brothers during the battle of the bulge episode but they had a couple of the japanese americans who survived talked about the exploding trees Oh, yeah. That part of France, which I actually have driven through before, is a very, very dense forest. And so uh, it's just dense enough for you to conceal yourself and not dense enough for you to be able to run away from a machine gun, if that gives you a good idea. And so when the artillery was coming down, it would snap the trees in half. And they said that the sound of that tree snapping in half is the most terrifying thing that goes uh, through your ears. Oh, my God. I can just... Yeah. I can't even imagine. Yeah, so they're walking through this valley trying to charge up those hills, and nothing's working. They're like two days into the battle of just constantly getting bombarded, and, and um, you know, no one's slept. Uh, they're probably not eating anything. Uh, most of them are probably close to dehydration. And finally, yeah. they say, okay, we get, we got to readjust what we're doing. They decide to flank one of the hills so they flank hill 617 is what it was labeled on the map um and they have this scene and the the survivor talks about it but basically they were on their way of of walking up that hill from the germans flank and they get spotted and uh the the japanese american soldier uh sees his buddy just get cut down by a machine gun and in just a moment of absolute rage, stands up and starts running at the German yeah. Germans and charging. And uh, just starts yelling out, go for broke, which is their motto. And he kind of snaps out of it and realizes what he did. Because he's halfway to the Germans and yeah. halfway away from his buddies. And he, he's about to shit his pants and like and be you know, scared. And then he hears all his buddies get up. And the rest of the dudes from the 442nd begin the charge with them. And yeah. they, they charge up a hill in a heavy machine gun fire. And uh, that, that was the turning point of the battle. Yeah, I had, I had this little bit here that talks about just that bit. Um, it says, with a steep drop on the left and right, the men had no choice but to go straight up the middle. Uh, Company Private Barney 
Ahiro was pinned down on the ridge, he saw enemy machine guns kill eight and wound 21 of his buddies. Then he suddenly, then suddenly a few men, including Ahiro, decided to go for broke. He charged up the ridge, shooting his bar and running 100 yards under fire. He single-handedly destroyed two machine gun nests and killed two enemy snipers. His brave action spurred his comrades to rally and boldly attack. B-A-R. Um, yeah, and uh, and so I guess he was one of the ones that was or, that was given the Medal of Honor. Yeah, that was the guy mm-hmm. on the documentary that was talking in the nursing oh. home. It was pretty cool to hear him tell it too. Um, and <clears throat> that same guy, uh, there's another part. Or no, this was the runner. So they had a personal runner for the lieutenant colonel, so the white lieutenant colonel that was in charge of the 442nd. Um, he was running a message back to the lieutenant colonel to tell him where the troops were, and he witnessed the two-star general trying to chew out the lieutenant colonel, like huh. you were referring to. Uh-huh. And the lieutenant colonel snapped at him, which is way above his rank, mm-hmm. and said basically, "Back the fuck off! These are my boys, and you're not gonna, you know, you're not gonna let them die." Because the two-star was saying, "You better fix bayonets and charge right up the middle." Yeah. And so the runner overheard that, and uh, the runner had something cool to say after, too, which, you know, when, when they asked him, was it worth it to go up that hill? And he said, I think we all thought two things. And uh, one is, it'd be pretty cool to save that lost battalion, but two, uh, this was going to be for our country and to prove to ourselves that we were Americans. Yeah, that's, and that's wild. Man, that's so heavy to think that those dudes were constantly thinking they had to prove themselves by doing these crazy things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was a a big a big reason that propelled them forward. I think. Yeah. Uh, so they end up taking Hill Six Seventeen, and they can stop the German counterattacks, and they eventually end up taking the other two hills. And at the end of the day. 350 end up being killed or wounded, which is more than the amount of men they saved, which was 275. So in three days, they did something that a lot of, you know, other people weren't going to be able to do. And I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. One more note I wanted to say, which is kind of funny, uh, was they tried, they were so desperate to get the lost battalion supplies that they actually packed their artillery pieces with food and ammo and shot them into the lost battalion (laughs) and then another note on the fog of war they have a quote from germans that were in action that day that said they didn't even know that battalion was behind enemy lines until we attempted to airdrop supplies into them Oh, my gosh. So they were actually behind enemy lines for a whole day without the enemy knowing. And then they spotted the airdrops, and they put it together at that point. And uh, they had to call off the airdrops immediately because of the weather. So they actually did no good except alert the enemy of their position. Um. But if you want to talk about a great example of the fog of war, you should probably study the rescuing of the Lost Battalion because there was a whole bunch of miscommunications that caused a lot of unnecessary deaths in that one battle yeah and i mean and i guess that goes throughout the whole war huh there was just constant so much of it was very chaotic and 
And that's war. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, and what makes what makes it so beautiful, what these men did so beautiful is the fact that they saw that chaos and insanity and they just kept going and they did these uh these absolutely selfless things. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. I mean, I read a little bit about how the the newspaper in Honolulu once they these guys were going off was just constantly talking about how proud they were of how proud all the Japanese American families were that their sons could show how honorable they were. You know, it was all about honor and and making showing to your country that that you were loyal and all this and you know it was just it was a big big deal yeah uh so currently places where you can see stories about the lost battalion they actually have a commissioned painting in the pentagon depicting their uh rescue the 442nd rescue in the lost battalion and then um B. Fontaine actually has a memorial to this day of the 442nd Infantry Regiment, and they call it the Avenue of the 442nd, and it leads to a statue of uh, those soldiers. So that's pretty cool that France still honors what America did. Uh, So just shortly, that's the the big part of what we're going to cover. We'll cover a few more things here. Um, I thought this was funny. So after they take all those losses, they go into what's called the Champagne Campaign. And uh, they get to hang out on the French Riviera for about four months in the Maritime Alps and (laughs) patrol a pretty calm uh, segment of the French-Italian border. And they basically uh, have a lot of wine, women, and merry times, as it so says. Adding more to the half... Now it's half French, half Japanese babies. <laughs> Which I think they're out there. They're out there. Uh, and after that, they oh, and then this one cool story: one of the Japanese American Nisei soldier captured an enemy submarine. Oh, I didn't hear that. You didn't see that? No. Yeah, while on patrol uh, in the Champagne campaign, he sees what looks like a dead animal in the water. <gasps> And it turns out to be a small one-man midget sub with a German inside. Oh, wow. So they captured a couple spies over there as well. Um, after that that little bit of respite, they go back on the, the line, and they're on the Gothic line, and they have a couple more bouts of action, and they receive more medals, and they do more cool stuff, but we do not have enough time to do that justice. We barely did with yeah, justice to the previous part. So I did mm-hmm. want to read two more things. Uh, one, we're going to go over one of the Medal of Honors. And then two, we're going to talk about um, the general who ordered the charge during the Lost Battalion part. And some stuff that happened to him afterwards. So Saido Munomori was posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor after he sacrificed his life to save those of his fellow soldiers. Uh, He was the only Japanese-American to be awarded the Medal of Honor during or immediately after World War II. So like we talked about before, there was 21 Medal of Honor winners, but only one was right after, and Mm. then the other 20 have happened uh, in the past 100 years. Um, So to read... A little bit about Munamori. 
I'm trying to find the description here. Here we go. So rank and organization, private for first class, U.S. Army, Company Alpha, 100th Infantry Battalion, 442nd Combat Team, near Saravezza, Italy, 5th April 1945. He entered service at Los Angeles, California, birth, Los Angeles, California. He fought with great gallantry and intrepidity near Saravezza, Italy. When his unit was pinned down by grazing fire from the enemy's strong mountain defense, and command of the squad devolved on him with the wounding of its regular leader. He made frontal one-man attacks through direct fire and knocked out two machine guns with grenades. Withdrawing under murderous fire and showers of grenades from other enemy emplacements, he had nearly reached a shell crater occupied by two of his men when an unexploded grenade bounced on his helmet and rolled towards his helpless comrades. He arose into the withering fire, dived for the missile, and smothered its blast with his body. By his swift, supremely heroic action, PFC Munamori saved two of his men at the cost of his own life and did much to clear the path for his company's victorious advance. Hmm. Right? That's, that's pretty wild. And, I mean, what do you... You gotta think he was, what, maybe 20 then? Yeah, and it's funny when you hear his whole story because he actually volunteered for the U.S. Army before war had happened mm. um, in November. And so when the Japanese attacked in December, he was transferred to menial labor and out of a combat unit because he oh. was classified as 4C, like we talked about the earlier. Enemy. Yeah. So even after that, in February 1942, he was able to regain his role and that's when he was moved to the 100th. So you want to talk about a guy who is absolutely determined to serve his country. Yeah. You don't see that much. That's amazing. Or I guess you see it a lot. We talk about it a lot, actually. But you don't see it much today. You don't see someone faced with that much adversity where someone completely strips away their rights and he says, you know mm -hmm. what, I'm going to fight for you anyway. And I'm going to prove yeah. that... I am the best American there can possibly be. Yeah. And, I mean, this is a whole other topic, but it was the same with the African-American units. Yeah, the, the Red Tails and the ones that um, fought in Italy. And yeah. I'm sure we'll get to them as well. Yeah. But, yeah, it's amazing how, um, you know, there's something about people learning that adversity makes you stronger. And we, we talk about this a lot off of the podcast, and I hope that's still being taught today, and I think it is, and I, you know, and I think if you can get around a kid and teach him that, even if you're not his parent, but you're just like an uncle or a cousin or older brother or whatever. Yeah. But that's something that needs to be passed down, and it was passed down to me from my grandfathers and my father and my mother, uh, and through my experiences with older guys that I've trained with. So I think as long as, you know, that continues, we'll always have great Americans. Oh, yeah. And I mean, Americans are pretty resilient. And I think it's just embedded in everybody th that believes in America, this idea that um, there's something great here. And, and it's based on something that that goes beyond or transcends any kind of racial lines right it's it's an idea it's that that idea of 
overcoming and achieving and working your way up that kind of thing so yeah and i think it's so cool this group uh specifically because they just put their heads down and worked harder and came out on the other side you know the better for it um oh yeah yeah you you wish you could go back and change the way that your uh forefathers thought but that's just the way it was back then I'm sure it was a weird situation and people felt under attack and people just had to make decisions. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of decisions in the 1940s all around the world were racially driven. And you can't just get around that fact. So they, uh, they thought it was in their best interest to put those Japanese Americans in prison and as the gentleman from the 442nd and the 100th proved... Uh, there was no more loyal of an American than a Japanese American at that time. That's right. Uh, do you want to talk about the general? Um, well, I thought um, because we were a little confused about the two events, so I didn't. No, let's just put more confusion out there. Well, no. I know for sure mine, so I can say mine. But basically the general, uh, to give an idea about the kind of vitriol that was between that general that ordered the charge and the lieutenant colonel that was in charge of the uh, 442nd. They met at a later date in Fort Benning, and the general saluted the lieutenant colonel and then said, uh, well, you know, let's just let bygones be got bygones and tried to shake his hand. And the lieutenant colonel refused to shake his hand and just kept his salute. And that was in front of people. So... That's about as a much um, emotion, you know, was bottled up that that dude was willing to put his whole career on it just so he wouldn't have to shake that guy's hand at a later date. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, and I had read something like that too. And like right immediately afterwards, when um, they were they were they had some kind of ceremony, and the guy said, "Are you know, is this all of the men?" Because even General Dahlquist hadn't realized how many casualties the 440 Japanese Americans had suffered. Yeah, he put on a parade and only uh, like 50 guys showed up to commemorate the, the the casualties of the charge. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't even realize how, how you know. many people died yeah. from the uh, orders he put forward. So yeah, it was a rough, rough action. Those guys fought through it, and uh, you know, I'll say it again: they definitely showed that they were as American as anyone else, and they were braver than most. But that's all we got. Um, stay tuned next week. Maybe we'll be doing an episode on what? Um, maybe on Merrill's Marauders. Maybe we shall see. Maybe. We'll have to tune in next Tuesday to find out.